This podcast is part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club, a program designed to help all podcasts reach their full potential. For information about joining the Robots Radio Rocket Club, check out robotsradio.net. Hey all you heroes and champions, crows, pirates, and inquisitors. Welcome to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I'm Shelby. And I'm Austin. And we are so excited to bring you this podcast. Every episode, we'll be talking about a different topic in the Dragon Age universe. From the Maker to Lyrium to Aravels, we will cover it all. There will be spoilers. And always remember, swooping is bad. Hello, and welcome back to the Dragon Age Lorecast. I am Austin, or Teacup, your co-host for this podcast, and I'm here with my other co-host. And I'm SheCup, or Shelby, and I am the lore nerd on the show. Yeah. So we're back. We're ready for our episode two of season two. Um, we are just all kinds of excited about Dragon Age right now. I know. I cannot believe we've gotten two major pieces of news about new Dragon Age content. First, we got the DAD, DA Dreadwolf announcement and then today which for those of you who are listening to this when it came out was a while back um we got news about the dragon age absolute absolution tv show okay and now i have a question because we as a fandom need to decide are we renaming the awakening ad like acronym or are we going to call this something different well i think I think um, most people refer to Awakening as D-A-O-A. Oh, yeah, that's right. So, but I mean, I do think that that's, there's a reason why this is named Absolution and Dragon Age 4, the new game, is not named Absolution. And I think that that is a real reason why. D-A-A-A. D-A-A. Yeah. Ah. Anyway, moving on, please. So we're continuing in our new season, season three. And I'm sure if you haven't looked, we do have a new logo that we're very excited about. So you can go and check that out. And yeah, so we're continuing this series of, you know, demons, magics, and spirits. Oh my. And so today, what are we talking about? So we're talking about something that's uh, really integral to magic. This is not necessarily about magic or demons or spirits per se, but it is about something that all of these things use. Um, and that's lyrium. The drug of Thetis. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it it is the drug of Thetis, but it's also, it's also a mineral that's very important um, lore-wise. Which, I mean, there isn't like a like drug drug, I guess. I mean, there's alcohol. Well, yeah. Well, I'd assume there are other things. Like if there's alcohol, there's other like, you know, natural occurring drugs as well. Yeah, I don't know. But let's not get too off topic. Um, so yeah, like I said a minute ago, at its core, lyrium is a mineral, albeit a very dangerous, valuable, and expensive mineral, but it is a mineral because it occurs naturally. So are we ready to get into my fun facts? I'm always ready for fun facts. Well, that's just not true, but you may be ready for the, (laughs) um, so lyrium is intimately connected to the dwarven race. They are the miners of pure lyrium because they're the only ones who are able to come into direct contact with its raw form without being seriously injured. If a mage comes into contact with raw lyrium, in contrast to dwarves, it can kill the mage immediately, which is ironic because I'm pretty sure... (laughs) I'm pretty sure that you can pick up some junk items in Dragon Age Awakening that is is like raw lyrium chunk or something else um so that's a little plot holy in my opinion um but i could be wrong about that uh protagonist plot armor yeah yeah well anyway the process by which lyrium is refined is the dwarves most securely guarded secret so we don't know how 
how lyrium is refined into something that we can use. And also it's important for me to tell you that dwarves are not immune to the effects of lyrium. This is a very common misconception. They're not immune to lyrium. They are resistant to lyrium due to their proximity over the years to natural lyrium veins in the deep roads. So this resistance is only skin deep because if a dwarf has like a major cut or something like that um, and raw lyrium is directly exposed to it or if they like inhale raw lyrium or it comes into contact through the eyes or mouth, it does leave even dwarves very vulnerable to side effects. And these side effects are normally usually non-lethal as long as like it's minimal exposure, but it can still very severely impact them. And another thing uh, surface dwarves lose this natural resistance tellurium over time, depending on how long they've been in the surface. And then my last fun fact of the day is that the dwarven word for lyrium is isana. Isn't it like, it means like tears of the fade, or is that just another name for lyrium? I think that's another name for lyrium. I don't think that's what the dwarven translation means. All right. I was just curious. Yeah. So let's talk about how we use lyrium because that's like the main thing that we talk about um, or the main thing that is important about lyrium like for us in, in the game. So uh, process lyrium is used both by dwarves and by the tranquil to enchant items and create runes. We use this a lot in the game. When we ingest a liquid version of lyrium, a mage can enter the fade fully aware. This is essential for the harrowing ritual, and it can also be used in spells. And this is something we've done in the games multiple times. Also, Templars ingest lyrium, which is what gives them their power to fight against magic. And if you remember from some of our other episodes, it's important to note that Imperial Templars and Taventer, they do not ingest lyrium, so they do not have this, this check against magic like the rest of the Templars do. And it's also important to note that Seekers do not ingest lyrium. Seekers have outside abilities separate from lyrium. So a dwarf couldn't become a Templar even if they wanted to. Why? Well, they would be resistant to lyrium effects. So wouldn't they not gain the abilities of a Templar? See, I kind of interpreted that as like they would still gain abilities, but they just wouldn't be as strong. Right. I guess that's true. I don't know. They don't let dwarfs in the Chantry, so who knows? Well, I mean, they do let dwarves in the Chantry. That's true. Anyone can go into the Chantry. Well, maybe not a Kunari. Well, anyways, let's get back to lyrium. So most of Orzammar's mind lyrium is given to smiths who use it to craft weapons and armor. They mix the lyrium with steel to make superb weapons. And it's said that the dwarves are the ones in all of Thetis. They make the best weapons. Also in Orlay, uh, a very small amount of lyrium is often put into stones to create what is called glowstones which is kind of like a streetlight. And also the anvil of the void allowed Keridin to turn living dwarves into golems of steel and stone with the use of lyrium. This process involved dressing the volunteer in the armor the size of the golem and then pouring molten lyrium through the eye holes, the mouth hole, and the joints of the armor. A magical, not mechanical process is what animated the golem. I found this to be very disturbing. Yeah, it makes you understand why Keridin was basically like, this can never like be again. Yeah, and that and combined with the fact that it started with volunteers and then it, it turned into people were being conscripted. Yes, yes. And they were sent they were basically sending like criminals. They were basically condemning them to be golems. Yeah. 
criminals. And I, I think it was just more people than that. Like probably the cast list. Of course. So the Smiths of Amgarak, um, with the aid of a Tevinter mage, created Lyrium Wells, which were then used to travel between the physical world and the Fade, as well as moving and transporting large objects. I found this interesting. This also comes from DLC from Origins called The Golems of Amgarak. It's really creepy, and the Lyrium Wells... um, have a lot of bad consequences so if you're interested in learning more about that story you can play that dlc um a couple more uses for lyrium here so mages can also be branded with lyrium which is what renders them tranquil and severs their connection to the fade uh lyrium can also be used as tattoos you can infuse lyrium into the skin and this is what has happened to fenris and then finally lyrium sand can be used to create explosives. Very, very effective bombs. I believe that's what Anders uses to blow up the Chantry, is a lyrium oh, bomb. I think it's a lyrium bomb. That's really interesting. Um, I don't know the answer. I don't know if that's true or not. You know more about Dragon Age 2 than me. Um, so I would I would trust your, your uh, recollection on that. But the reason I find it interesting is because we first learn about lyrium bombs in Dragon Age Awakening when um, there's someone at your keep who that's they've kind of invented lyrium bombs and everybody's like dude this is really dangerous like we shouldn't use this and uh, you can use it if you want to (laughs) so that's interesting because Anders was there with you in Awakening. Uh, we, I think we don't really know because we're not privy to like Anders' like thought process when he's deciding what to do with the Chantry because um, he keeps us in the dark about it. So I don't really know. Sure. Okay, well, are you ready to talk about history a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So let's talk about history and just what we know about Lyrium and its existence. So Lyrium basically bridges the gap between the Fade and the world. We don't know how. We don't know why. We don't know who caused this to happen or if it's natural. We just know that it does. And we also know that Lyrium grows in the Fade, um, which is really interesting. So because of this, um, this is why the consumption of Lyrium strengthens the mage's connection to the fade, which is also what boosts their mana in game like combat. So what is mana other than just like a game mechanic? So from, I have a quote from the codex um, and this is the codex titled mana and the use of magic. Mana is that which defines a mage. It, it is potential that dwells within a person but does not always manifest itself. All men are connected to the fade. We go there to dream, but only those with this, pow- with this potential may draw upon its power. Mana is then a measurement of one's ability to draw power from the fade, and it is this power that is expended in magic, end quote. So basically to sum, up, sum that up, mana is the amount that you can draw power, combat ability, whatever, from the fade. Which And then that amount of power that you draw from the Fade is what empowers you to spell cast, essentially. So the more you can draw from the Fade, the stronger your spells will be. So this brings up a couple things for me. One that I think that may perhaps Lyrium, like where there are Lyrium mines, are where the fail is is uh, weak so that's why the lyrium is coming through which also gives me other instances to like how lyrium works and in dragon age inquisition we can get different crafting materials that are labeled as masterwork materials and they're all labeled as fade touched blank and so it's a mineral or a cloth or leather or something something natural that has been touched by the fade and therefore amplified So perhaps Lyrium's creation is the fade linking out 
and is basically touching a mineral that creates it into lyrium. That's interesting. And so lyrium is just fade touch stone. But if that was the case, would lyrium be able to grow in the deep roads? There's nothing to say that like the fate. I think like, why would it not be able to grow in the deep roads? I'm saying that the fade is leaking out there. The, the veil is weak down in the deep roads. Right. But what I'm saying is that in the example of the fade, we'll just say the fade touched um, ring velvet because that's my favorite. Ring velvet is something that already exists. It's not something that's continuing to grow. It's not something that is like, like it's not still part of the animal that it came from. It's not still living. It is a dead material. But with the lyrium veins in the deep roads, they're still plants. They're still growing. They're still living. They still have their own, like, there's, it's still its own organism. So my question is, would the fade reach out in that way to animate something that's living? And if, if it would, then we're not really seeing lyrium veins. We would be seeing something else. And what is that something else? It's just the thought that like, because lyrium grows in the fade and like it growing into mines, whatever indicates that something is like the fade itself is bleeding out into the into the material world and so the veil is thin where lyrium grows right see that's that's what i was thinking that that the veil is thin wherever lyrium grows and i think that's something in lore that's verified so that's not necessarily to say that lyrium is isn't actually lyrium um you know what i mean and it, I, I wouldn't be surprised if in Dad we realize that because of the events of Dragon Age Inquisition, the veil is weaker in other places and surface level lyrium veins are being discovered. Absolutely. That would not surprise me at all either. That would be that would create a huge tension in um, Thetis because then basically like you have all these lyrium veins I would imagine that the Chantry or the College of Enchanters wants control of that, but Orzammar is the only place that they know where they can learn how to mine it. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, wouldn't it be technically the property of Orzammar? Don't they have a claim to all the lyrium anyway? They have a claim to all the lyrium mines in in like underground. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. I would imagine that the dwarves would be arrogant enough to never think that there would be lyrium veins anywhere else. Well, sure. I mean, why would they? I, I right. don't even think it's arrogance. It's just it's just based on it's just based on their history and patterns that they're used to because that's never happened before in thousands, hundreds, and thousands of years. So why would it start now? Right. I just think it's gonna it would create a lot of problems. There are a lot of things that would create a lot of problems for us going into dad. Yeah. yeah you're not wrong there. Um, well, let's get back to what we know about lyrium a little bit. So this kind of also goes along with what we were just talking about because the process of lyrium refinement makes a lot of drastic changes to raw lyrium in its raw state it's described as a metal. But when it's refined, it becomes a smooth, silvery, almost iridescent liquid. So lyrium is vastly changed. Like its properties as a substance are changed through the refining process. But also, and this is really like lore heavy, the Chantry believes that lyrium itself is the vessel through which the maker created the world. They also believe that lyrium is the emerald waters of the fade. And Dagna's research at least verifies that lyrium and the fade are connected and linked in some way. So it's really interesting to me that the Chantry believes, the Chantry believes that, that the maker used 
lyrium to create the world and not even that he used it to create the world like it wasn't like he was ingesting lyrium and then just is like oh yeah okay let's create this like he's using lyrium as the vessel through which the world is created so that's interesting to me because we have often said austin you and i have often said that we see the chantry as a metaphor for Christianity and the maker as a metaphor for like the Christian God. And it's not a one-to-one comparison, but there's enough similarities that we think that it is an accurate, or at least that uh, the comparison can be made. But what's interesting to me about this and why I'm bringing up this comparison to Christianity is because this is a place where the metaphor falls apart because for Christians, Christians believe that God created the world out of nothing, that, that God just created the world out of God's own imagination. That is not what we're seeing in Dragon Age. That is not what the maker did. The maker used lyrium, something that it's implied already existed to create the world. Yeah, and I think this comes back in that like in Christian theology before creation there was only God. Yeah. There was nothing. There was no universe, there was no heaven, there was no anything. It was only God and then out of nothing came forth the heavens and the earth. In Dragon Age the fade is almost eternal. It has always been there. Mhm. The maker didn't make the fate. Right. And the maker didn't even make the world out of nothing, like Christian theology says. So I think that's an interesting point. But my last thing I want to talk about before the break is something that we hear referenced all the time. Almost, Almost every time we talk about lyrium or even dwarves. And that's the song. So... There are a lot of characters who refer to the song when talking about lyrium and and its effects, too. So some examples of this are Liliana, Justice, Cole, Reese, and Samson. They all reference the song, and there's more, but those are just the ones that came to the top of my head. So the song comes from the fact that dwarven miners are able to find lyrium veins in the deep roads by listening. And they claim that they can hear the stone sing. Other non-dwarves, when they listen to raw lyrium, they can hear a strange yet soothing sound coming from raw lyrium. Those who are Androstian believe that this is the voice of the maker. So when um, we're in the Descent DLC, Volta tells us that a book that belonged to Paragon Garal um, that you can then pick up mentions that the dwarves once referred to the song as the Titan's Hymn. So there is this musical element Telerium that we haven't really explored very much in the games yet. Yeah, and it's an interesting point because Androstians believe that the song or the thing in there is the voice of the maker. Um, but we know from later on and in conversations with Bianca about Red Lyrium that Lyrium is alive. Um, solely because, and like not getting too much into this, but red lyrium is red because it's infected with the blight. Um, and the blight only infects things that are living. Correct. Um, at least from what we know. And so, and the existence of lyrium ghosts, such as Liliana, suggests that lyrium is also sentient, not just alive, but can act and have a will and there's something in the codex about lyrium ghost liliana that talks about like being sung into being or something like that and now the song is needed elsewhere yes yes and in awakening Kristoff and justice they get possessed or Kristoff's body gets possessed by justice more accurately And so you can give Justice slash Kristoff a ring um, that's made of lyrium. 
and um, he basically talks about how he can hear it singing. Which is interesting because whether Lyrium is connected to the Titans or connected to the Fade, which I think it's a, probably a both and situation, something Lyrium has an ability to communicate and connect things, um, which might be interesting. I'm surprised that we don't we don't have an opportunity to ask Solus about Lyrium. Well, do do you know that for sure? I've never seen an option. I mean, I've never I've only played Trespasser to the End once. I wonder if he says anything about Lyrium when you take him on Bianca's quest. Maybe. I haven't done that in this current playthrough. Maybe I'll do that and see if he says anything. You'll have to let us know. Mm -hmm. But I just, I think the song aspect is really interesting. And and it, um, the sentience and alive conversations, um, you know, kind of impact this a little bit. Like, is delirium singing because it's reaching out to the people that are that it senses, or is it always singing and you're just now hearing it because you're getting close to it? We don't know the answer to that question, but I think it's uh, an interesting one to think about. And like, this is a point from a mythology standpoint: singing and song is often used as a method of creation. Um, if you look at one mythology that comes at is Tolkien's world, their God sings creation into being. Um, that's also another thing like in the inheritance Aragon cycle, the elves create things and shape plants by singing to them in the language of magic. Um, and there's something about the singing that happens. And you see this kind of in the Bible where like song is used in this way of like creation. And if you think about it, music is an act of creation. You're taking something that otherwise has no meaning and then you're giving it meaning and form. Yeah. So this kind of idea that the lyrium sings and they the chantry claims that the maker uses lyrium to create the world. It's a parallel there from like a mythology and theological standpoint. Yeah, it's not like Adelaide Field or anything. And I'm not trying to say that it is. Um, well, um, do you got anything else to say about the song? No, I just hope we get more. And I, I'm very excited, but sometimes I am cautious because I know that Bioware is not going to give me everything I want lore-wise in this game. Yeah. Yeah, and I would sacrifice more lore about Lyrium um, to get more lore about other things. Personal opinion. So Yeah, probably. All right, well, let's head to our break. Enchantment? Enchantment! You need me. Ugh. I am yours as always. All right, well, welcome to the middle of the show where we talk about all things about the podcast that don't have to do with the lore of Dragon Age. And now's the time that I uh, tell you that we are on Patreon if you'd like to support us there. There are various tiers that give you benefits from ad-free and early access to episodes all the way to getting your name read out every show or joining and or joining us at once a month for our patron chat, which we just had last week. That was a lot of fun. If you are looking forward to, and you would want to join us on that you can go to patreon and sign up for our first enchanter tier and we love hanging out it was a lot of fun talking with our patrons and if you want to get in on that we would be so excited to have you um and so now i think it's a good time to read our uh patrons that we read every week of the show and they are lisa m uh derek b genesis and zuba Yes, and um, I don't remember if we did this last week, but we do have a new patron to thank, and that is Becky M. Thank you so much. Yes, um, this is also a time that I tell you that if you also want to support the podcast, but you don't necessarily have the means or don't want to support us financially, that's totally fine. Another great way to support us is to like, rate, and review us on either Spotify or Apple. On Apple, if you leave us five stars and some words, we will read them out on a future episode of the show. And we do have a new five-star review to read today, Shelby. Yeah, we do. And this one is from our new patron, Becky M. And Becky M says this, amazing podcast, five stars. 
I discovered Bioware RPGs only six months ago, new fan, but have since become completely obsessed. With podcasts like this and the Mass Effect Lorecast, what a great time to be joining the fandom. I really enjoy listening to Austin and Shelby, and it's clear after five minutes how much time and effort they put into preparing for each episode. In a series with so much lore, it's invaluable to have someone condense important information from across the series in a way that's thorough yet digestible. I'm excited to start my second playthrough with all the new knowledge and appreciation that I've gained so far from this podcast. Keep up the good work and thank you. And thank you, Becky M. Yes, thank you for that awesome review. And so another thing that we're running is show us your Heroes, Hawks, and Heralds. We're still doing that going on. And so if you want to share a your hero, your hawk, or your herald, you can go over to our Discord and share it there. You can tweet it at us. You can email us at dalorecast at gmail.com. Shelby, do we have a character to share today? We do. And this one is also from Becky M. Um, this oh, one yay. is just the Becky M show today. <laughs> um, yes. So we have Becky's Inquisitor, her herald, and her herald, her inquisitor, was named Elena. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Elena Lavellan, a female Dalish elf mage who became a knight enchanter. She casually worshipped the elven gods, but usually took a questioning or agnostic stance when prodded about whether or not she was the herald. She was definitely open to the possibility of discovering that she really was. She did, she did recruit all party members and was closest friends with Varric, Cassandra, and Dorian. She had many a heated debate with Vivian and Sarah. And there was a moment in the fade where she was almost, almost seduced by Solus. But at his suggestion, she thought better of it and is now happily married to Cullen. She always strives for peace, justice for the oppressed, and forgiveness. So she sided with the mages, convinced Celine, Gaspard, and Briala to rule together, allied with the wardens, forgave Blackwall, and gave him a chance to atone. When sitting in judgment, she always chose the option to have prisoners serve the Inquisition or the folks they had wronged. She let Morrigan drink from the well, made Liliana divine, and kept the Inquisition as a peacekeeping force. So awesome. And if you need to, if you want to see what this Inquisitor looks like, they are beautiful. And you can see that in our Discord server, which is a perfect segue for me to tell you about our Discord server. Um, so you can join us on the Cups Podcasting and More server. The link is in the episode description. And there we just talk about everything about Dragon Age and the other podcasts that we're on. And I'm on the Assassin's Creed Lorecast or the Holocron Histories podcast. We also share pictures of our dogs and just talk. If you want to talk about the upcoming Dragon Age news, this is a place to do it where you can come share your theories and talk all about that. Or if you want to talk about Star Wars and Kenobi and all of that, you can do that there too. Or Assassin's Creed. We just talk about everything or other games that to your delight. We just have a good time there. You can also find us on the Robots Radio Discord. You can find that link in the episode description. You can join there and hang out, view a bunch of awesome other podcasts, our fellow Rocket Club podcast and the other podcast in the Robots Radio Network. All right. Well, let's get going. Well, that was uh, Orlesian. Dareth Shiran. You fear barbarians will swoop down upon you. Yes, swooping is bad. I have two more things to talk about uh, before we get into our side character. And the first one is about the mining cast. Because the mining cast is really like the main character when it comes to Lyrium because... They're the ones that, that, that mine it and refine it for us. So uh, they're the only ones who know how to do that. If the mining cast goes extinct, basically, uh, they just is screwed. Like there's nobody else that knows how to refine lyrium and change it into like how it's used. So that would be a major issue. <laughs> 
if that were to happen. Um, but something I wanted to talk about is not as much about mining dwarves, uh, like dwarves who do mining, but a time when ancient elves were mining. And so in the time of Elvenon, Mithal allegedly struck down the Titans and the ancient elves mined the bodies of the ancient um, Titans for lyrium. The Inquisitor visits one such mining location in 944 Dragon. This comes from the Codex entry Veilfire Runes in the Deep Roads from Dragon Age Inquisition Trespasser. So this is a big conspiracy theory, right, Austin? I think you know a, a good bit about this theory more than me. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and so it's basically saying that like Mythal, the Codex interest entry in question states Mythal struck down the pillars of the earth which is a name for the titans and so the idea that the tight they're mining the titans bodies for lyrium kind of tracks with lores because dwarves also call lyrium titans blood um tears of the fade is also a name for lyrium and the I kind of where we go in the Descent DLC, how all the lyrium veins kind of lead to this lyrium rock wraith that we fight kind of implies this idea that the Titans kind of sit there. And so it's kind of interesting because I would I'm curious why the ancient elves would need to mine for lyrium because if we take soulless the veil didn't exist they should be able to access the fade no problem why do they need lyrium that's right and i think i guess i wonder if they use it in perhaps different ways like we've talked about how uh you can use lyrium to improve your spell power and like your mana and your ability to draw from the fade. And so I'm just wondering if, if Lyrium in ancient Elven times was less about that and more about just improving your magic overall. Or perhaps the Evanuris kept it all for themselves and that's how they wielded power over an entire race of magic users. Also very possible. Very, very possible. Okay, my last point in this section is about lyrium trade and um this is a major not controversy but conflict in inquisition because the chantry prior to inquisition the chantry is the one that controls the entire lyrium trade they control it that no one else no one else gets lyrium Chant, the Chantry gets Lyrium directly from Orzammar and then they distribute it to the circles. That's how it works. That's where you get Lyrium. But by the time of Inquisition, as we know, the circles have fallen. So, yeah, the Chantry still has Lyrium from Orzammar, but they're not distributing it, distributing it to the circles because their circles don't really exist anymore. And so the Inquisition goes to Orzammar in a war table mission or a conversation with Josie one and you basically secure a line of trade with Orzammar, uh, which is primarily about lyrium and the chantry is pissed. They're not happy about this. It's also to note that even before inquisition there, the Carta is making their bank and lyrium smuggling whether they're getting that to apostates or other dwarves who want to sell it to the highest bidder or whatever happens. But outside of like illicit activities, getting lyrium from the Chantry is the only way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about addiction for a little bit. Uh, end it off with a sad note. But I think this is an important thing to talk about um, because this is real. This is real stuff. So if, if, if addiction is a trigger for you, you may want to skip this section. So we know that ingesting lyrium is addictive. Um, and since Templars are given lyrium to develop their talents and give them their abilities, this uh, is really an incentive to keep them loyal to the Chantry because the Chantry, as we just said, the Chantry controls the lyrium trade. So 
once Templars have basically a prolonged use of lyrium, it becomes addictive and the cravings become unbearable. Over time, they grow disoriented, incapable of distinguishing their memory from the past or the present. Um, and sometimes they, they just like think they're dreaming the whole time. They very frequently become paranoid as their worst memories and nightmares haunt their waking hours. Other, si- other known side effects uh, than the paranoia include obsession and dementia. So basically, this is really messed up because the Chantry controls the lyrium trade. They supply their Templars with lyrium to give them their powers and encourage them to continue taking lyrium so that they can continue controlling the mages, which is then making them more loyal to the Chantry. So the Chantry has absolutely no incentive whatsoever to ever see the harm in causing Templars to live as addicts. Right. Um, And I think the Chantry, like, they don't care because they can always just get new recruits for Templars. Uh, There's always going to be a demand for Templars as long as the Chantry is in control of the circles. Well, and also, like, there's always going to be kids from small towns who see the Templars as their way of getting out. There's always going to be like children of farmers who don't want to be farmers who think they could fight and then go and become a Templar. Colin Rutherford. Yeah, um, exactly. But I think one thing that I just want to talk about really quick is the side effects of lyrium addiction are almost one for one with the bleeding effect from Assassin's Creed. Interesting. Okay. Say more. Um, so, and I think this is interesting point. So the bleeding effect, if you don't play Assassin's Creed is basically an effect of being exposed to the past and you, the past, and you can't separate like whether you're in the present past or future. Um, your ba- everything is just all like kind of one moment and you, your brain can't sort it out. And this leads to paranoia skits, like kind of schizophrenic episodes, other things like that, which is similar to what we've just described in Lyrium Addiction, which is interesting because Solus tells us that in the fade, all moments are as if they're at once. And like he talks about like living like and seeing not only seeing past events, but seeing past events from different perspectives at once when he's walking the fade. Um, and so I just think that's interesting that the similarities exist there that the Templars basically have the situation of they can't separate this past and memory is kind of associated in there when there's kind of this timelessness in the fade that exists there. And as we've discussed, Lyrium is kind of like the fade reaching out into the material world. So are you saying that the fade is the equivalent of the animus? Sort of. No, I think that's a really interesting comparison. Uh, and there are there are a lot of similarities there. I don't know if it was intentional. Uh, probably not, but it, it's interesting. That is for sure. So to kind of go along with this, Cullen Rutherford also tells us that Templars uh, basically lose their memories um, once they've ingested lyrium for a prolonged amount of time. And this starts really small at first. Um, a misplaced item or words to a song, but it continues to fade away over time. And the important part to know here is that it's probably different for every Templar, Um, kind of like it's different for every Grey Warden when they get their calling and have to go to the deep roads. But everyone has different levels of immunity to, to Lyrium. No one, like there's no year mark like once you've been a Templar for 27 years okay you're done like there's there's that's not it um and we know that because we see Templars like Cullen who are are experiencing withdrawal and addiction um who are able to to wean themselves off of it and similarly we see Templars like Samson who are not able to do that 
and we see a Templar. I don't remember his name, but in Origins, when you first go to Denerum and you go to the Chantry, there are two Templars guarding the Chantry and they won't let anyone in. And one of them, his mind is already addled by Lyrium and his, his, his partner basically says as much like, oh, he's been a Templar too long. Like he just needs to retire already. Um, so we see a lot of different Templars who have these things affect them at different times. And it kind of drives home the point that like in Thetis, no power comes without its own cost. Like if you're a mage and you're using magic, there's always this, there's always the risk that you're going to get possessed by a demon. Um, with the Templar, there's addiction. And, you know, with the Inquisitor, there is the mark is killing you. Yeah, and, you, lose, you lose your arm. Right. And Grey Wardens, the blight kills them just slowly. Yeah, absolutely. So um, to kind of close out this conversation about addiction, I brought a quote from Samson in Dragon Age 2, because I think that Samson is a really fascinating character. And I think that he is really a, a great example of like a person who is used by the powers that be and and is not cared for like they want him wanted him for his abilities and for his status as a templar but they didn't really care about samson and this quote illustrates that and samson says this they don't do anything to keep you you join the order you're free to walk away but they're the only ones who've got the dust lyrium you need to drink the stuff to face down the magickers the problem is, if you ever try to stop, it just about kills you. Samson is a perfect foil to Cullen, like from a writing perspective, in that there's so much kinship between the two of like where they kind of get at similar points. Samson gets disillusioned with the Order a lot sooner than Cullen does, but like Cullen finds like his strength because he's not left alone. He's not abandoned. Like Cassandra takes care of him. The inquisition takes care of him and gives him a purpose. Samson doesn't find that and is kind of left on the streets in Kirkwall. And he's basically cast out and imprisoned by the end of DA two. If you've done his quest, depending on how it goes and Meredith is basically like, just throw him away. Like basically how he's trash. And it sets him up perfectly to be manipulated by Caripius. But if Samson was given the same support and the same care and relationships as Cullen was, he would never have been taken advantage of by Caripius. And exactly. also, and also I'm going to be really honest here. And I need to preface this by saying my canon playthrough of Inquisition is a Cullen Mancer. Okay. I love Cullen. But I do think that the roles should have been reversed, that Samson should have been the one to join the Inquisition and Cullen should have been the one that's corrupted by Corypheus. And I think that because we get so much more character development, honestly, character development from Samson, even in Dragon Age 2, we see him struggling with addiction in 2, we see him helping mages who run away we see him being a beggar a homeless person or a person exist person experiencing homelessness we see him doing some selfless things while he is at like the bottom of the barrel himself and um we see cullen on the other hand in a position of power not using his position of power to stand up for the little people um, we see him siding with Meredith until the very last minute. And of course, we also know that he does like try to repent from that and um, that he's super disillusioned with the Templars too. But we see more of Samson's character development than we do of Cullen's in-game. Yeah, we don't get Cullen's point A to point B of realizing the order is bad. That happens off screen. Yeah. Exactly. So I know that that's a hot take. I know that a lot of people out there love Cullen and I do too, but I think it, it would have been, uh, it would have made more sense at least if we had seen more of Cullen's character development on screen. You ready to move on to our side character? 
I'm going to be honest. Uh, the answer is no. I'm not ready to talk about this side character. Because <laughs> I don't like this character very much. I think this is the... Well, I guess we did Lord Seeker Lambert and you don't like him either. No. I don't. I uh, know. Um, every time I talk crap about Lambert in an episode, there's one person that always messages me and is like, there you go, talking about Lambert again. <laughs> And so I know they'll do this this time too, uh, which is totally fine. But I won't spend any more time talking about Lambert. We'll just dive right into to this side character. And I felt like this side character's story is very much wrapped up in Lyrium and Lyrium trade. So I felt like we needed to talk about this person. And this person is Bianca Davry. And I was really hoping, I was really hoping that my research into her would make me like her a little bit more and it, it it didn't really happen so which is such a shame because she's voiced by one of the best voice actors of all time i know bioware give laura bailey another chance please anyway let's get into bianca a little bit bianca davry is a surface dwarf she's also a lover of varic She's the creator of the Bianca weapon, and she's a very skilled and very famous smith. And if she wasn't a, a surface dwarf, she would definitely be a paragon by this point. Her family is also part of a, or it, her family is also a callness family. And that's a dwarven word, which essentially means that they're surface dwarves who maintain the caste and rank system of Orzammar. You know, if I was the warden, a dwarven warden, and I knew that was an option, I would be so mad. What do you mean? Well, I guess the warden does kind of keep their cast because if you're a castless dwarf, you get inducted into the warrior cast. Um, and I guess you're restored to the noble cast if you're the dwarven noble. I don't know. But you're basically cast out as a surface dwarf and are castless when you could be a surface dwarf and maintain your cast? Like well, that's an option? No, it's not that they're maintaining their cast in Orzammar. Orzammar doesn't recognize them. They're maintaining the cast system among themselves. Ah, uh, I see. Which is even more messed up. I think like, okay, you are part of this community that's basically been abandoned by Orzammar and you're still providing them with like trade and stuff. You're helping them and they're not helping you. And you're going to like recreate their institutions and like their caste and their like system of class to further eliminate other people from your circle. You're just going to recreate all that. And you don't see the like hypocrisy in that. But I guess I shouldn't be talking about how this doesn't make sense because in our world, humans create new institutions all the time, right? And all the time when we create new things and new institutions, we create the same problems in them that we've always had. So anyway, um, Bianca is actually under consideration to become a paragon for her inventions, which is extremely impressive. Number one, she's very young. But also, she is the first surface dwarf to ever be nominated. And that's something that's really interesting. Um, and good for her. I'm very proud of her for that. That is amazing. That is an accomplishment. So I wanted to talk about a few of her inventions really quickly. So the Dabry seed drill is a seed drill that she improved. Um, and it's capable of distributing seed in perfect rows at nearly any spacing and of adjusting to the correct depth for each seed type. This became a standard across the free marches, Antiva and Navara. She also invented something called the Davry spinning frame, which is a spinning machine run kind of like a grain mill by the action of moving water. A single worker could spin up to 60 spools of thread at one time at a much finer quality than hand spinning. 
And then the Davry Mechanical Thresher. This is a steam-powered device that separates grain from chaff, doing work that normally takes hundreds of laborers weeks of back-breaking effort in mere hours. Navarin nobility believe that the Davry Mechanical Thresher is the greatest innovation of the Dragon Age. I mean, it makes sense. She is basically creating a more efficient way to get food. Yeah, and good for her. Yeah. And then finally, we have the crossbow, Bianca, which needs no introduction, as we all know and love it. So uh, all of that is to say that Bianca is is a genius smith, and she is is she is widely viewed this way, um, and and many of of her inventions have had a permanent impact on the world of Thetis. Her first invention, the Davry seed drill, instantly established her house as a powerful house, um, even though they had previously been obscure and weak and not impressive in any way. This instantly catapulted them almost into fame. So Bianca currently lives in Val Royale and she does keep a workshop there. She also employs almost a hundred Smiths full time. And most of her time is now dedicated to developing new designs. So Bianca is not just a powerful Smith. She's not just um, a talented inventor and innovator. She's also uh, a person who employs a hundred other people. So not only is she good at like creating new designs, she also is giving jobs to people. And that's, that's important as well. Okay. So as you may know, Bianca and Varric were once romantically involved and some may say that they still are. The Dwarven Merchants Guild, however, forced them to break up because they almost started a clan war with their relationship. They are not technically allowed to contact each other, though we know that they do thanks to Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, But Bianca is married to a man named Bogdan Vasca, whose family is also a prominent member of the Smith cast. Bianca appears in both comics and games, specifically Dragon Age Inquisition and Until We Sleep. And this is really, the comic is really what made me dislike Bianca. Um, because there, there's a few panels in that where Bianca and Varric get together and they hook up and we basically see like Varric putting his clothes back on and is saying like, we, we can't keep doing this. Like, we, we can't, we're just hurting each other and we're hurting ourselves and we're hurting the people around us and we can't keep doing this. And it just makes me so sad for Beric. Um, and this is similar to what I said in our Zevran episode about how I don't like that Zevran, you can, if you become queen with Alistair, um, you can keep him as your, your consort basically. And I think that he deserves more than that. And I think that Varric deserves more than Bianca. He deserves more than stolen moments, um, snuck away, having to, to live in secrecy and spend the majority of his life uh, away from the person that he loves. Instead, he should, he should have a fulfilling relationship where he gets to live with that person and be with them all the time and can show them off and be proud of them. Varric, Varric deserves the world. Varric is the most wholesome person I've ever seen in a video game, even though he is also like not wholesome at times, but he deserves someone who loves him for him and who can give him a life. And Bianca is not that person. She is not willing to sacrifice her life as she knows it to compromise and create a new life with Varric. You know, you always talk about how Anakin and Padme, like, yes, they're married, but what kind of marriage do they have that they have to keep it secret all the time? That's given me very much this vibe. Yeah. And I stand by that statement. Like, even if Anakin hadn't turned to the dark side, I don't think that him and Padme's relationship would have, would have lasted because you can't like, you you can't, you can't live that way. Like 
especially when we have children. Like, what? He's going to come over on Saturdays? When they, they have he, time off from the Jedi Temple? That's not a way to raise a child. And you're going to teach your children that they have to be secret about who their father is? Right. So you're te- not only are you teaching your children to lie, you're teaching your children that it's okay to be bad parents and not be there for your whole, your child's whole life, or that it's okay to do that to a child or that it's okay to expect that from your parent. And I just, I just don't think logistically that would work out. And also that's why to go back to Dragon Age, that's why Varric and Bianca's relationship doesn't logistically work out because it's not really a relationship anymore. It definitely used to be, they were once in love and, and you know what? I do think they still have feelings of love toward one another, but they don't have a real relationship because they can't, they're not allowed to even contact each other. They do, but they're not allowed to, you know what I'm saying? Well, and like Bianca and maybe Varric made this conscious choice too, but like there was a choice made that neither of them were willing to risk the anger of the Merchants Guild to be together. Yes. And I respect that choice, but you can't have your cake and eat it, eat it too. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I want Varric to be happy. Um, He's had, he's seen a lot of tragedy, you know, with, with Bartrand and Hawk and Anders and all the people he's known that have died. Like it's hard. Um, and he deserves, he deserves happiness and someone that will love him for him. Um, and I don't think Bianca is that person, but I do also hope that Bianca herself, like she deserves love too. She deserves a relationship that she feels loved in. And, and if that's not her husband, I hope she finds someone else, you know? Um, but let's go back to inquisition for just a minute. So in inquisition, the inquisitor meets Bianca when she's talking with Varric at Skyhold and she brings you a quest and it's a possible lead into Corypheus's source of red lyrium. Essentially, the site of Bartrand's Folly has been leaked, which is where we found the Red Lyrium Idol in Dragon Age 2. We later find out during the quest that Bianca is the one that leaked the site. And then she threatens you. We know you don't like Bianca. (laughs) Sorry, I'll move on. And then my last thing that I wanted to talk about uh, with regard to Bianca is that according to her research, and she does give us a very interesting lore revelation, but according to her research, red lyrium is lyrium that has been corrupted by the blight. And we mentioned this previously in the episode, but this means that lyrium is alive, at least in some way, because the blight can only taint living things. The implications are huge. I, we would be here all night if we started talking about them. Yes, we would. So yeah, um, Bianca, not my favorite. Yeah, I don't hate her. I don't hate her. I just, I wouldn't want to hang out with her. And if she showed up at my party, I would not give her a shot. I just think that like she's mean to Varric and that gives her a lot of like, the fans don't like that. Yeah. And like, I'm not saying that Varric is innocent either, because I think their, their relationship is mutually toxic, but she's the one that's married. Varric is not married. So that's not okay. She shouldn't be continuing the relationship and continuing to seek him out. Right. Right. She, she very much doesn't, she strikes me at least in inquisition when you encounter her as someone who just like can't accept someone told her she can't have something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Which is the whole thing of like, you know, he does send her red lyrium to study and he tells her to be careful with it. And she says, Oh, well you told me not to do something with this. So now I am doing something with it. Yeah. Classic. Yeah. But anyway, that's all I've got about Bianca. All right. Well, there's nothing else to say. I think we're ready to end this podcast. Well, I mean, there's lots more things I could say, but 
I won't. Yes. Uh, so anyway, thank you for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Dragon Age Lorecast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at DA Lorecast. If you have any lore questions, topics to unpack, or side character suggestions, email them to us at dalorecast at gmail.com. The Dragon Age Lorecast is a part of the Robots Radio Rocket Club. You can join the Robots Radio Network Discord by clicking the link in our episode description. If you enjoyed our show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe and give us a review. See you next time. Hi, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ariel. And we're the hosts of the Legend of Zelda Lorecast, a podcast about all things Legend of Zelda, from Errol to Zora, and all the fun things in between. If you're ready to dive deep and learn more about the Legend of Zelda lore and everything surrounding it, come join us on Legend of Zelda Lorecast. You can find us on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Google, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We hope to see you soon.